Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to an all-new season of The Accidental Activist, presented by Mercedes-Benz. I'm Aisha Sasei, and I could not be more thrilled to have you join me for season two. In partnership with Mercedes-Benz, each episode will begin with a short profile of a young woman chasing big dreams. These girls who all share the same name, that is Mercedes, were selected to be part of the brand's I Am Mercedes campaign, as they each embody the spirit of world-changing ambition. Today's young woman wants everyone to know that black females can like and do anything, even gaming. I am Mercedes and I am 29 years old. When I started getting into gaming, you know, the boys talking about gaming kind of like look down on me. Like, you're a girl, like you're not supposed to, like, aren't you supposed to be playing with dolls? It shouldn't be seen as a stigma for being a woman who likes to play video games or a black female who likes to play video games. Most people hear all the negatives about the gaming community as a female, but there's definitely communities that protect you from that. The fact that there is more light being shed on being a a female who enjoys playing video games, I'm super stoked and appreciative and excited to be a part of this I Am Mercedes project. Thank you, Mercedes, for being you, for representing women, Black women, in gaming, and showing everyone that there can be a safe space to grow with a community that supports you and loves you for who you are. And with that, we move on to our first guest of the season. Police are put in a position of supposedly security (laughs) and safety and then make us less safe. They haven't ever made black folks safe. What are you fighting for as an activist? We don't have to kill ourselves in order to keep each other well. And we shouldn't have to. State violence is like parental abuse. People are going to die whether I speak up or not. If my speaking out could prevent at least one or mitigate some damage, then I have to. Hello, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome back to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Today, I'm speaking with actor Kendrick Sampson. You may know Kendrick from his time as Jesse on the hit teen show The Vampire Diaries, or from his recent portrayal as Nathan in Insecure, the critically acclaimed and Emmy-nominated drama on HBO. But Kendrick is perhaps best known for his long-running focus on racial equity and much-needed reform of the criminal justice system through his organization, Build Power Initiative. And the latter is the real reason I wanted to talk to Kendrick. His passions have taken him from studio sets to the streets. All season long, I'll be talking to change makers 
who are pushing themselves far beyond their own personal comfort zones with the intention of making this world a better place. And my hope is that these conversations will be a source of inspiration for every single one of you. Enjoy the show. Kendrick Samson, welcome. Welcome to The Accidental Activist. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to get into all the good stuff about you, your activism, your childhood, your motivations. But before we get there, I do have a question for you that is a burning question that I think academics and philosophers will be pondering for all time. Are you Team Damon or are you Team Stefan? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Going back. <laughs> I'll say, really, my character was Jesse, and I'll tell you what, the only thing I was worried about back then was Jesse, keep going, because I had to pay my bills. So I was team Jesse. I ain't even gonna lie. I was broke, and I was like, am I coming back for another episode? Because I need the money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not mad at you for that. I'm not mad at you. Not even... Team Jesse. Team bank account. Team bank account. (laughs) Obviously, Vampire Diary is one of the high points of your career, but let's take it all the way back to the beginning. Houston, that's where it all started for you. Talk to me about growing up as a biracial kid in Houston and how that shaped your identity. Yeah. Today, I understand the term biracial, but I don't ever describe myself that way. You know, I I think a lot about what race is and what whiteness is and how it was created as an oppressive construct. And so I don't necessarily, you know, see it. Interesting. (laughs) You know, I know that race is a construct, right? I just call myself black, right? Mm -hmm. But I did, you know, have a white mom. And here's the thing. Nobody's ever come up to me and been like, man, I know you white, but what else? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, nobody's ever been like, hmm. But I did, you know, I grew up with a white mom. I grew up with, you know, a black dad. I grew up with Mexican family. And I had a lot of questions, you know, (laughs) and and everybody else did too. What were the questions? Yeah, I had questions of like, you know, because my dad taught us that we, we were watching Roots in like third grade. What's your name? Gunter. All of these factors that I was learning about led me like, white people must be, hmm. you know, like, so I'm like, in my dad, I'm like, you must have hated white people. Like, you must hate white people. The way he grew up just in rural Louisiana and the, the the stories that I would hear torturous and you know that was my main thing I'm just like well why did you marry a white woman and Mm -hmm. had to explore a lot of why black folks question my blackness right and why even though my dad was like you black and don't touch nothing in that's yeah he was like don't touch nothing in the store he used to tell me that the FBI would frame me So you had those real conversations about race and privilege and where the lines are. Yeah, I definitely understood it, but I didn't understand it in the the context of privilege as I do now. I think back then it was like I knew that we had made it out the hood. Hood adjacent, but still, you know, we made it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Still moving. Yeah, and I had a lot of brothers and sisters. I have 
seven, um, I think there's seven of us total. And they were mostly brown skin, dark skin, and had, there were questions, you know what I'm saying? Like, why do, why do we have different parents? And walking into places where people would talk about my mom, and I was a nerd. I was like super nerdy. I was like big ass glasses with like leopard print because you I know don't they were. That. I think called tortoiseshell, but I thought they were leopard print because I liked animals. That's <laughs> I was a nerd, nerd. High waters. It was it was a different. This is an image, Kendrick, that you're painting here. This is an image. And you know when people would make fun of me and be like, "Ah, oh, your mom is white," or, or whatever. Most of the time, I would question it. I'd be like, oh, why, why do they think that that's funny? But I would go back to my book. <laughs> I didn't spend a whole lot of time yeah. on it. I was just like, I guess they don't like me. I'll live. But it definitely made me feel like a misfit, right? Like I didn't fit in in my family. You know, I was very clear that I was the only speck of color in the room a lot of the time. And even still today... You know, I, I always explore identity and myself and other people just so that people are intentional about it, so that I'm intentional about it, so that I understand it a little deeper every time. So I, I do my best to dig into white supremacy, how, you know, how that affects us, colonization, yeah. toxic masculinity, all those things privileged that I know now. What does this mean? Why can we afford this now? I ain't complaining. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, now. But you're questioning always, and you're processing yeah, the whole always curious. time. I think that's probably the benefit of it is it made me always curious. So I guess the question is being the nerd, always processing. I know that becoming an actor, because you're clearly very aware, being an actor would, would to many people not seem like the obvious choice for you. And I know that you contemplated actually going into law <laughs> and studying law. How on earth did you end up becoming an actor then? I mean, I understand there was a chart. You did yes, a chart and there were pros yeah. and cons. <laughs> yeah, I was a strange child. I, I think sixth grade. So my mom always had us in the arts, right? Another, and I found out later, another privilege, right? Because I realized a lot of the schools we were going to, they were taking out the arts. First thing to go. Yeah. So she would find different things outside of, I mean, anything that could get us out the house. She was a single mom. And not bothering her uh, while she was trying to work, boom, let's do it. I think it was fifth grade, sixth grade, I found acting. I said that I wanted to act because I saw these commercials and stuff like that. And, and then it was my own space. So I found my own thing. I was like, I ain't looking back. I had, I could make up these little characters. And I was always making impressions and like coming up with these stories. And that was my way to hold court. That was the power that I had. I was a nerd super introvert. So when I could tell a story, when I could tell what I was reading or something that happened during the day, that was like my power time. Like I've got the, I've got the stage. You got the spotlight. And it really felt cathartic and it felt like something special. And then fast forward to ninth grade when I got to high school and they were like, you got to pick. And I even thought about like all the things I wanted to do before. I'm like, I was going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be I was like, I see these things on TV. I could play all of them. Why do I have to, you know, and I saw people like Harry Belafonte, you know, affecting change you know, when I was looking back. I feel very strongly about the fact that great men have been disenfranchised for a long time and have not been able to sit in high places politically or on other levels because of color. 
Sidney Poitier that I admired. I am artist, man, American, contemporary. I am an awful lot of things, so I wish you would uh, pay me the respect due. And I was like, I, I can do that. If I want to fight for people, I'll just do what they're doing. Oh, look at Martin Luther King. Look at Malcolm X. I'll just do what they're doing. I don't know what they're doing, but I'm going to do it. And then I could play a lawyer on TV if that's what I want to do in a film. So easy peasy. I'm done. So you choose that lane. You say, this is my path. You eventually come to L.A. You come to L.A. without any connections which, you know, and this is a city which, you know, runs on connections. What were those early days like for you? Yeah, so the first day I got here, my mama had like a boss's boss or something like that. She was, she was like, you know, he has a sister in L.A. and you got to meet her. And so that was the first person I met when I got there. And I thought she was, she, she's like the COO of this production company. She's going to be incredible. And she's going to put me in movies and I'm going to be famous and I could go back to Houston and I could be bi-coastal. <laughs> I was like, that, was, that was a plan. You had the plan that was plan. And I got, <laughs> I got to the dinner and she was like, all right, well, you could go to church with us on Sunday. And I was like, mm, and you went. what you trying to do, lady? I need money. I'm trying to survive out here. But I did go to church with them and ended up becoming family. So while I didn't know anybody and I didn't have any connections really in the industry, she didn't give me no, mm -hmm. no jobs or anything. She taught me incredible values. Like there was no better grounding that I could have had. That's God. Like that is, that's the first person I met. And she's still my sister to this day, to this day. <laughs> so I am forever grateful. And then I met my mama through her. A lot of people think mama was my biological grandma because we looked alike. And we were always together. But I actually met her when I was 18. Did you meet her in the church? How I did met you her meet in the her? church. I, like the first day I went to church with her, she was like, go sit next to my mother-in-law. Nobody was sitting down. It was just literally only her. And mm -hmm. she was like, go sit next to her. And so I went in there, all these empty seats. And I was like, hey, you in my seat. And she, and she was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and when I was like, no, nah, I'm just kidding. Marilyn told me to come out over here and sit by you. And she, she like slapped me on my arm and was like, boy. And then we were best friends. And literally after that, she knew I didn't have anybody to celebrate my birthday with. And I was here alone. And when she cooked me my birthday meal, she presented the choice. She was like, hey, you know, I know you're struggling right now. I lost my husband last year. She was 88. She had lost her husband. She needs help around the house. And I needed help. So we became partners in crime. That's beautiful. <laughs> that, that's absolutely beautiful. Church is still important to you. Spirituality is important to me. A spiritual life is important to me. Let me ask you this. You clearly... As you, you mentioned, maybe not church per se, but the values which, you know, through the community you formed in, in L.A. came to be central to your life or strengthened. You had those within you and then you get to L.A. And my understanding is you were offered some jobs in those early days that you turned down because they just didn't sit well with you, with your values. Even like ninth grade, ninth grade, I got an audition. And I was uncomfortable with it. I, was, I thought. What was it was like 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, and they were all like naked and 
fucking and i was like this is, <laughs> these are children i'm like nah y'all tripping mm-hmm. i went in the room i told them that i was uncomfortable with it and that i couldn't audition for this mm-hmm. back then i'm like man that's crazy like my life might change and they gave it to us on the spot which is crazy and i'm like for kids this is just not right so i talked with my mom about it and she was supportive of me leaving so i left and the director gave me another role. It was like a featured oh. extra extra spot, but I was ecstatic. <laughs> How did the community you formed in L.A. help move you into the activism? I mean, a lot of it was things like that, right? Like Marilyn instilling strong values in me, the people that I met. I started going to temples and mosques and trying to find my religion and exploring LA and who I am and what I believe and what my purpose is here, is here because it's a struggle. So it's got to be some purpose. Mm. I ain't about to mm. be going through all this and nothing come out of it. Y'all tripping if you think this. I'm like, this is awful. I'll go back home. So, you know, I wanted to get really solid in why, what was my purpose here? And, and I ended up going to this Ethiopian Bible study with this youth Bible study no way. for like four years. That was my social life. I ain't had no money and I was paying maybe $500 in rent, um, which I found out me and Mama were splitting evenly. <laughs> Neither one of us, we both thought we, she was like, well, he got this white mama, so he must be all right. He's going to, he's going to be paying his rent. And I was like, she must be rich. She got this beautiful place on this hill, man. She'd been there for 20 years. So she was paying nothing. So we was in there legit roommates, 88 and 18. Um, like, they instilled all these beautiful like values in me. And I think a lot of that came from my upbringing. And still today, you know, I think I, I, I was really intentional and because of the struggle, you know, sitting down and breaking down what I believe. And that was my favorite thing about this Bible study is these kids would bring all different translations and they would break down verse by verse. We would sit there from like 10 p.m. to one o'clock in the morning and then go eat. We would find, you know, some cheap diner or whatever to go grub and talk more and um we could spend the whole time the whole two three hours on one verse just being like that don't make no sense and why are you talking about gay people like that like it it was literally like well actually if you say it this way and you talk about it this way and put it in this context it makes sense but i think the way we've been hearing about it in the church ain't right you know and mm-hmm. i could curse i can say whatever i want and they not sitting there judging me And it was a beautiful place. Like that probably was the inspiration for the safe spaces I want to build today for our people. Right. So let me ask you this in your own words. What are you fighting for as an activist? Liberation of our people. I want to with the movement. I I can't do it myself. Hell no. I ain't even trying (laughs) to imply that I'm going to do anything. But I will definitely participate and and give as much energy as I possibly can to eliminating the oppression that that harms my people today and would harm my my kids and my nephews and nieces in the future. I want to make sure that they have a much more liberated future. Police brutality is something that has long troubled you and it's troubled you not just in the world, but how it's portrayed in Hollywood. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I think. 
state violence is like parental abuse, right? Like you see these people that are so much more powerful than you, so much bigger than you in concept, right? Like I'm a, I'm a baby, you know, I'm one, two, three years old and I'm looking at this giant human. There's an easy disparity of power. And when they abuse that power, it becomes very confusing. And that's the relation, your relationship with love, right? That's how you define it. And that is what oppression is, right? Like you have these people in the, in the position of responsibility to care for and govern people. And they have no intention in governing. They have no intention in factoring in our wellness. It's a job for them because of capitalism and all this other mess, right, that informs our society every day and how we operate. It's profit first, right? It's, it's abusive. Police are put in a position of supposedly security <laughs> and safety and then make us less safe. They haven't ever made black folks safe. So we haven't ever had that association like, man, I sure do love me some police. Wow, I feel so much safer. But when police are around, no, I, I don't know any black person. And, and when they do, if somebody did, then I'd be like, okay, <laughs> like who paying you? All right, <laughs> coonery. But I think that is, you know, something that I always saw. I saw the abuse of authority. I saw the abuse in school. I saw the targeting of folks. I saw people, you know, that I rode with be beat up by cops. I was pulled guns on me and told me all kinds of shit. One time accused me of stealing my mama's car, found her ID. She's white. I ain't ever had nobody be like, well, you're white. I talked about this earlier, right? right? Yeah, you're you white. I see this mom of yours. Y'all look so much alike. It's crazy. Just going to let you go. You know, it, it was literally like, oh, this is the owner of the car. We have the same middle and last name. We have the same address. Right? <laughs> like, I had, but it still wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. He mm -hmm. was like, oh, so this mm -hmm. is, oh, okay, this is your mom, right? Your yeah, mom, and, right? And yeah. was legit like, I'll shoot you. I will, I'll blow out your kneecaps. You try to run. Had a gun pointed at my head. And all we were doing, me and my cousin were sitting in the parking lot waiting for the car to warm up. That's it. I didn't ever have good interactions with the police. And it was very clear that there was a distinction between how they treated the white kids and how they treated us. When I got to L.A., I moved to South L.A., which is the black mm -hmm. area in L.A. that a lot mm -hmm. of before now where how they're gentrifying Inglewood and all these other places. Yeah, white yeah. people would not venture down there. But. My people were down there and I and I loved it. I miss it. I don't live there now. I had to move. I would drive in every mm -hmm. day and get pulled over at least once a week oh, driving wow. into the city. And I didn't ever have a good relationship with cops in Houston or L.A. So when I saw the abuse, when I started working with unhoused folks here in L.A. and I mm -hmm. saw the abuse from cops and and started digging into to educate budgets and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I found my my central the central cause, right? That oppression comes from state violence and and dedicated myself to ending that. Time for a quick break. We'll have more of my conversation with Kendrick Sampson when we come back. Welcome back. Here's the second half of my conversation with actor and activist Kendrick Sampson. 
Do you remember the moment that caused you to think, I'm going to move from the sidelines to being in this fight? I, I don't think there was a one moment, but I do remember several. I remember that kind of lined up and, and um, you, you know, there were the bigger, like Trayvon Martin, right? Yeah. And confronting white supremacist violence and and then tying in police brutality to it's no different, right, than this white supremacist violence when it came to Mike Brown. And then they started piling up. But those two in particular was when I went from, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever said this before. I used to feel really like I used to talk about my faith. You know, I used to talk about God. I used to talk about values publicly. And mm -hmm. I, I felt like that was risky. And I was like, I realized it wasn't as risky as I thought because yeah. people would accept that and be yeah. like, yeah, you're so brave to talk about your spirituality. But then when I started talking about Trayvon Martin, ain't nobody said nothing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, where's the support? Then when it came to Mike Brown, it was even worse. My people are dying and I and it could be any of my people any day. Right. I've already had mm -hmm. people killed by mm -hmm. police mm -hmm. and people are going to die whether I speak up or not. If my speaking out could prevent at least one or mitigate some damage, then I have to. I have no choice. Otherwise, I'm complicit in some way in staying silent. And so I also saw how people, other people were intimidated and scared to say things. So I wanted to open that up for them. Like, you don't have to say what I'm saying, but at least you have me out here being more radical than anybody else mm -hmm. and giving you permission mm -hmm. um, to say at least something. So let me ask you this. Other actors have taken the position, I can give money. I can give money. I can donate. You have taken this. I'm going to be out on the streets. Why? Why? Why not just donate? Why not just? Well, you're going to be donating regardless, right? So if either you yeah. get out on the street and start speaking publicly, you might miss out on some money. There's your donation. And if you have the resources, don't get me wrong. I have a organization and a company and both of them run on money. So if y'all want to give y'all money, let me tell you. It's a great thing. I can tell you exactly where to give it because we need the money. We trying to continue Build to power. work. And I realized that in the movement, a lot of people are like, ah, problematic money. And then we don't have anything to sustain ourselves. Now, you have mm -hmm. to be careful what your money is attached to. But still, I'm like, we do need the resources. So don't get me wrong. Give your money because we do need the resources. But we need the resources and we need action in there. I was not giving any money because I ain't had none. So I, I mean, what was my option? I was like, I got to get out in the streets. And that's 2013, something like that, 2014. Mm -hmm. Trayvon was killed 2012, and then it took off 2013 in the trial. And then I think Mike Brown was 2014, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, Feels like 15. an endless. And, yeah, and so I had been in L.A. almost 10 years by Mike Brown. And the first time I was introduced to, you know, homeless shelters and such, I learned a lot. 
I learned a whole lot about how sure. the systems operate and how philanthropy operates. And I knew, I learned what band-aids are, right? Like the, the philanthropy is a band-aid. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the difference between mm-hmm. grassroots activism and, and philanthropy. It all blended together to, for me. And now I have empathy when other people come to me like, hey, that's crazy that you're nonprofit and, you know, and can't differentiate necessarily between donating and philanthropy and that type of engagement. And then getting out in the streets right, but i did realize that you know philanthropy sometimes was a part of the problem and that the shelters and the services that they were getting there while they're necessary were not getting to the root of the problem and so i started looking at the root causes of poverty and that was also where i developed my passion for mental health aside from my brother's struggle and mine and my family's I saw a lot Mm -hmm. of my family in these shelters, right? I was like, that's my family. That is the struggle that they're dealing with mentally. That's the struggle. And I'm like, I can see and empathize with these folks because they are my family in my mind, right? Like I see my my direct family members. So I have to get involved, started doing research on the root causes. And that's what led me eventually to... Oh, this is what's happening. Right. (laughs) And state violence is real. And part of part of that violence is extracting from our communities to the point where we Mm -hmm. do where we have to have people that are unhoused and then the abuse that comes from that. And then state violence, police and that 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 um, that was the journey, I should say. So for others who are listening, how do you sum up that responsibility for artists as you see it in this moment? I think there's that's where my purpose grounds me, right? That's when I'm like, I thoroughly vet my purpose. I have a rubric, right? My values, wellness, creativity, liberation, inclusion, and power, right? And I have questions mm-hmm. with that. And I question myself to hold myself accountable. I have advisors to hold myself accountable. So when I make a statement, when I'm putting things out there, I am grounded in my purpose. And mm-hmm. I have thought a lot about communication. And so I think once I get to that place where I'm trying to communicate something very effectively, I believe my strength as a story as a, as a storyteller is as mm-hmm. a storyteller whatever and I see that how people are affected with art that art transcends, right? I believe and I know in my heart that art is the best form of communication. It's the most effective communication whether it be storytelling, music, it always pierces through visually, you know, that there is a spiritual metaphysical element to it that is beyond just words and statistics. And that is where people become connected to things when that different element, that beyond the physical element really penetrates through to their spirituality and connects on a spiritual level. And I think that's, that's what art does for the revolution. It makes people think differently. It catalyzes things in them. But let me ask you this. How do you distinguish between performative activism and the real deal that is actually moving the cause along that is affecting change? Because that is something that obviously, as you know, someone in the public eye, that's what you and others who are trying to do this work get tagged with, oh, it's performative. Oh, you know, it's not the real deal. How do you distinguish between the two when you're looking at it? I think it, again, you know, not to beat it over the head, but I think it boils down to purpose, right? I'm super grounded in my purpose. I'm always thinking, what is my intention here? And so I think 
a lot of people, they think that this is a good way to, to feel good. And people are taught that, hey, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you do it because it makes you feel good, not because mm-hmm. of the other person. What? What? No, that's a benefit maybe, but you, you do it because the other person needs you something. Do you do it because it's right. You do it because you have access to a resource and your whole purpose here is to live in harmony and community. That is a very healthy ecosystem, the key indicator, one of the key indicators of a healthy ecosystem in, in the world <laughs> and on earth is diversity. So if you think about what the ecosystem needs, what the community needs, what That's the collective what needs, it's not ever about you because you can't live on this yeah. earth by yourself. So I think a lot of people get caught up in like making themselves feel good and doing something good instead of the purpose behind it and how, you know, how you want to end things, what the vision for your liber- for uh, your loved one's liberated future is. It has to be connected to a liberatory purpose in my, my, in my view. Build Power, your organization that you co-founded, talk to me about its mission. Um, it's a very specific mission and how impactful it's been. Yeah. I mean, our very specific mission boils down to realizing and reimagining a liberatory future for our people, right? That is, I mean, from, from whether that's reimagining in the organizing room and the table and trying to figure out what this next protest looked like, you know, uh, that we're going to amplify and, and co whatever with our partners or, or creating, you know, PSAs and short films and now long form content that amplifies the issues that, you know, and, and, and paints the, the picture of the vision of what the future could be and what a liberated future could look like, or, Educating people on the pieces that give them that type of imagination, right? Whatever it is, that's the work that we do. We are real. We are reimagining, and we're working on what that imagination is, what that vision is for um, a most liberated future for our most marginalized people and the people that we love most in our lives. Um, in reimagining that, right? We also are taking on the task of realizing that future. So in the community, but I mean, we're known, we have produced things and such, but we're known usually for being in the streets, right? Like people know, don't even know that we work in Hollywood. Some of the people in the community come up to me and they're like, oh, that's that activist, something, something, something or another. They have no idea that I'm on this, (laughs) any show or anything (laughs) like that. So we want to continue that authenticity. And that is the work that's central to everything that we do. We are creatives and we love storytelling, but also, you know, that's that's our central work is is in the streets. You know, looking forward, obviously midterms are coming up. What is your sense? How much faith do you have in the political system that it will be supportive or it is something you can look to as you reimagine? Okay, okay. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> I mean, come on. I had to ask the question. Man, Joe Biden just doubled down on funding the police. Fuck all of them. I don't know. I, I, I can't. It, like, I literally, for the life of me, can't get a pulse on the culture right now. I don't. In, in terms of politics and, and such, I'm, 
I, you know, and I will very clearly be like, fuck Biden. I, I, I think it's, I, I can't stand any of the other Republicans. I think the whole shit is trash and should go down in a dumpster fire if it hasn't already. Um, and we're just watching the burning and smelling all the trash that comes from them. Um, that is the, the culmination of the white supremacist history of this country. And it's happening in, on so many levels. Now, there are a bunch of like really dope progressive folks, grassroots organizers, and some folks like Cory Bush that, you know, snuck up in the system and mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. really, really working on changing and transforming and doing some incredible work despite all odds because they're fighting their own party and other party, the, the, the dumpster fire. And so, you know, I have faith in them. I have faith in the people. I do not have faith in the government. <laughs> I just don't. Um, and I don't think I should. I think that there are leaders that we can categorize outside of government in, in terms of, hey, mm-hmm. I know Corey cares about us, right? Hey, I know who, whoever it is. Um, Tarsha Jackson, right, in Texas. I know Tarsha cares about her community. She grew up there. She struggled there. And now she's a city council member, right? Um, but she was an organizer. So I have faith in people. So I want to make sure that for this election season, we're just having safe spaces to pay attention, you know, and, and, and love on each other. What is the most important lesson you've learned as an activist? I want you to answer that for everybody listening. Um, I'll say two. Leave it better than you found it and the, the movement moves without you. Those are the two that I, are probably my favorite um, to talk about. So, you know, uh, leave it better than you found it was I saw on, on a, in a bathroom with this, uh, one of my boy's grandmas. Um, and she was just basically like, if you piss on the seat, wipe it up. Um, but <laughs> in my mind, I was like, whoa, leave it better than you found it. And so like, I deep. have preached that thing through Hollywood, through Texas, anywhere. I'm like, and people are like, well, I think that's Boy Scouts or something. Like that. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, this is how you apply this to every aspect of your life. And, and then when it comes down to me by myself, if I'm by myself, I'm room by myself, I have to leave myself better than I found. Right. Um, so that is, is one that, that I think is a easy rule to go into every room, every conversation, um, and leave it better than you found it. And then, uh, the movement moves without you is one of my favorite too, because it reminds Mm -hmm. you one, that the work is going to continue whether you're in it or not. So don't let you know, the lack of resources and the extraction of resources from those systems that will create that transformation that we really need, um, discourage us. You know, we don't have to put everything in like deplete ourselves and completely sacrifice ourselves in order to. And if you go to the Bible and you talk about Jesus said, don't do it. I did it for you, <laughs> like, you know, for, the, for the Christians. Like, hey, chill. Like, we don't have to kill ourselves in order to keep each other well. And we shouldn't have to, especially if everybody else plays their part. The movement will move without you. Somebody's always going to do the good and important work. It's going to get done. And at the same time, I love the flip side of that coin, which is the movement's going to move without you. So where do you stand right now? Are you part of the work? Are you doing part of the work? Are you participating? Or are you sitting on the sidelines while the movement is doing what the movement should do? Are you healing and resting up so that you can participate in the movement? Are you healing Mm -hmm. and resting up to try to avoid your participation and your accountability? Mm -hmm. You know? That is a wonderful place to leave it. 
and those important questions that everybody listening should take a minute to, to consider. Kendrick Sampson, it has been such a joy, such a pleasure and to spend this time with you and to learn from you and be inspired by you. Thank Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I appreciate your questions. (laughs) It was a great conversation for sure. (laughs) Thank you. Be well, my friend. Be well. I think that leave it better than how you found it. And the movement moves without you. A powerful takeaway is from Kendrick Sampson. Far too often, we minimize our personal responsibility for the world around us and our direct ability to reshape it. I hope this conversation with Kendrick inspires you to opt in or lean in further. Thank you so much to all our listeners and thank you to our season sponsor, Mercedes-Benz. As always, check out the show notes for resources and learning materials from our guests. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez, Taylor Williamson, and Chelsea Daniel. Our editor is Liz Smith, and our production assistant is Abby Delk. Guest booking by Mary Hollis Williams of Good Talent Lodge. And special thanks to Arella Productions. Take care, everyone. Until the next time, bye for now.